Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Review of the Ghostbusters franchise. What do you want? In this episode, we will go through the plot, details, and trivia of Ghostbusters 2 and give you our recommendation for viewing. Yeah, we can do more damage that way. Ghostbusters is a copyright of Columbia Pictures. Any discussion of the event, characters, or music from the film is used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Welcome to Continuous Play's review of the Ghostbusters 2 film in 1989, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, Annie Potts, and Ernie Hudson. I am Jay. I'm Anna. And we're glad to have you in with us again on Continuous Plays. We wrap up the Ghostbusters franchise. Last time we talked about one of the classic 80s comedy films of all time, uh, just a great film, Ghostbusters. And now, Anna, we're back to talk about the sequel, Ghostbusters 2, released in 1989. Now, you brought up a good point when we were talking offline about this. Five years between Blockbusters today would be something unheard of. Yeah, and I think the example I gave to you is the Austin Powers franchise. The original was made in, like, 97, and it actually wasn't that big of a box office hit. So when it got out of theaters, there was no economic reason to warrant a sequel. But it kind of became a cult hit on DVD, and which two years later, boom, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. And I think three years after that, two or three years after that is, the third one, which was Goldmember. So five years between a blockbuster is unheard of. And one thing um, we brought up last time is the only studio to really do that now is Pixar. And it's probably due to the animation taking so long because animation takes a lot longer than live action. But they also have a lot of other stuff that they want in place before they make a sequel. So they're the only studio that really – that just doesn't, studios now seems like, even they have them written in their contracts now, seem to churn out sequels, like even the movie didn't really do well, Oops, here comes a sequel, for what reason, I don't know, but. Um, oh, you've got you know, actors now who are, before the original is even released, signing on for the sequel and the third part, you know, they're thinking way ahead now. Oh so, yeah, and I, I yeah. think like, Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, I think everybody was locked in for at least three movies when they signed on for the original. I think. I'm not 100% sure on that. But, I mean, it makes uh, sense because you could have this big blockbuster and then you got a whole bunch of contract negotiation to do a sequel. So, 
Yeah, and and that's and we you know and that start that's been going on for years. Um, uh, Lucas did that with the original Star Wars cast. Mm-hmm. I think he did it with most of what was in the prequel trilogy, and, and, and studios have done that for years. It is interesting. The Pixar example is is neat because I think they get away with that because they specialize in a certain type of film. But a studio like Columbia Pictures that released Ghostbusters or Warner Brothers or 20th Century Fox or whatever you want, they, they're doing everything now. So they, they, that's why I think you see them churning out so much quicker. Uh-huh. And it has to be a specialty company doing specialty films. I would posit this, too, and we'll, we'll get into this, I guess, as we, we start churning through this thing. There was probably a larger reason at play as to why there was no quicker sequel to the Ghostbusters franchise, and I think the the answer is very simply there there wasn't supposed to be one. Um, and many times that happens. You know, there, there's a film that comes out and there's not supposed to be a sequel, and occasionally you can you can get a sequel out of a, out of an original film and actually do pretty good with it. Like I, I, my standard example of that always is the Alien franchise. The Alien film, the original one, there was not going to be any sequel to that. But the second one, a lot of people would argue, is just as good. So sometimes you can you can mine gold from from a good mine that's already there, and then sometimes you turn out stuff like this. And um, I, I don't know how else to do it. You know, this one's a little different than the last one. It's hard to just go between the scenes. I'm going to do my best here to try to give a very quick plot summary of Ghostbusters 2, and then we can we can launch into tearing this thing apart a little bit. We're set five years after the events of the first film, so we're still in real time. We're in New York City. The Ghostbusters are out of business. Right now, you've got Ray and Winston, who are basically going around as children's entertainers. Eh. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, uh, Egon works in a lab. Vinkman hosts a a psychic television show, which uh, and then you've got Dana Barrett, who now has given up her work as uh, part of the New York and London Symphony Orchestras to be a curator in a museum. She's restoring paintings. She also has an infant son and is divorced. Lots happened in five years with these people. A lot of supernatural things are still happening, and they begin to happen to Dana and her child and around this museum, and as the Ghostbusters investigate this, they dig up a city street. They discover a river of slime running underneath the city. There's a large painting that's part of the museum where Dana works, and it's of this evil dictator. He's talking to the curator of the museum. He's wanting to come back to life, and he's going to use the negative energy of of New York City and the river of slime running beneath it to bring himself forth. But of course, he can't just come out and be alive himself. He must inhabit a child because we know that is the best way. When you want to take over the world, Anna, go into an infant's uh, body because, you know, why, why, why get in a hurry? Wait 18 years before you can really do anything. Of course, the Ghostbusters find out about this. They go through a ridiculous uh, bit of plot to try to stop him. He covers the museum in a wall of what looks like jello. They bring the Statue of Liberty to life, essentially, to come through and bust their way into the museum. And after a very short fight with Vigo and on New Year's Eve, as the New York City, you know, crowd sings all Lang Syne and everyone's all, you know, happy and kissing and loving on New, on New Year's Eve. The positive energy takes over and they're able to defeat the monster. Then they all walk out of the museum, go cash their checks and off into the sunset. And that is our plot summary. <laughs> on that note, um, I was thinking of this. Um, I was thinking of this because I checked out the box office Mojo website and maybe you can answer this question for me. But if if I was reading it right, didn't this movie come out in the summer? This came out uh, in the summer, June nineteenth, I believe. Of nineteen eighty nine. It's basically a Christmas movie. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I just felt odd. 
I mean, the last New Year's of the decade is this time of great upheaval, and there there could be a uh, opportunity for. Uh, there's the opportunity for this ghost of Vigo essentially to take over the the world and and the cities on on the brink of destruction. Basically, they're, they're just going with the whole it, the same thing we went through when it was you know it was about to be 99 and 2000. It's, I know. Uh, we're going to change I'm, to 1990. Everything's going to end about the 80s. But yeah, I'm. I know that's so very say Prince didn't sing. I'm going to party like it's 1989. You know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, 1980. It's, I, I guess we'll get to this, but there's so many of in this movie, and I think that's one of the problems with it there's so many of those questions like why like you can't even the movie doesn't grasp you enough that you can't take yourself out and think why you're always thinking why 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 that because it's so unbelievable maybe i don't know well i mean you know we are talking about ghosts and ghost capturing and and, you know, what we said last time was the first film was good because it took this really wild set of elements, but it put characters you could believe in. And whether you believed what they were doing or not was legitimate, you believed the way they sold it. And they moved the plot along by the discussion. There was nothing in there that was just there. And they really did not do this in this yeah. movie at all. Yeah, this film is nothing but, and Bill Murray has said it, and I've got a quote, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll splice it in here. Is that this thing was the property of the effects department almost from day one. When they got the spec script that Ackroyd and Ramis kind of banged together because they, they finally got enough pressure and enough money thrown at them to do this, they ran with it. And in the first film, there's something like 60 or 70 effect shots. In this one, there's something like 500. And, and it seemed like we're just running from effect to effect. Now, let, let's kind of look at this. You know, we started out and said where the Ghostbusters were. They've been sued. They're basically out of work. You've got Winston and Ray, Ph.D.-level researchers, running around in their outfits, dancing and singing to the Ghostbusters theme song at children's parties. So now they're really breaking the, not only breaking the fourth wall, the fourth wall is part of the presentation. They are a victim of their own hype. Well, um, yeah, I, I'm just thinking of that scene. And the only good thing about that scene where they are at the children's party is that the little boy that tells them his dad says they're full of crap is Jason Reitman. That is the <laughs> only good thing about that scene. It's, it's almost painful to watch. I did not know he was in there. That is a great pickup. I did not know that. That's... Yeah, I, 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 read, I read it somewhere. But he's always like, my dad says you're full of crap. That's Jason Reitman. Oh, that's perfect. So, well, you know, you you got that. You got, of course, Peter doing the, the show. Like I said, it's just a straight-up ripoff of, of SNL skits, and it's ridiculous. And uh, – <sighs> You've got Egon working in some lab that's nondescript. But I, I'm going to say this right now. I will say that the idea of there's a river of slime running under New York and there's this evil painting that wants to try to come to life in themselves are not bad ideas. Now, they're in no way up there with the gozer you know, no. thing, but, but you're never going to top that again. So it's not, those are not bad elements, but I'm going to tell you right now, and you may disagree with me on this, Anna, but there are two things that do not need to be in this movie. And one of them is Sigourney Weaver's character. And the other one is her kid. They have, they are so shoehorned into this thing. Uh, we talked about last time. I was wondering is she, you know, she's in this movie. That's kind of a surprise. She's a big star. I was actually wrong. At this time, she is a huge star. She's done Aliens. She's done Gorillas in the Mist. She's done a lot of things at this point. There is no reason she needed to be in this film other than 
just nostalgia. And I have no idea why she's in it. I, I don't get it. Do you agree with me on that? I agree with you. The more I, I've had a, you know, we've had a week to think about this, and the more I've thought about it, yes, she does not need to be in this movie. It would, the plot, I think, would have gone a lot smoother if they would have just got some other dark-haired girl or some blonde girl or somebody else to play that part. You know, bring in a whole new storyline, bring in a whole new character. I, you know, and maybe Scorny Weaver wouldn't have been that bad coming back as Dana, but bringing the baby in is just, is like what they say in TV, is the Cousin Oliver effect or the jumping the shark. That's just the baby jump the shark. Well, oh, you know, this this whole film is like a big product placement anyway, because in the first three seconds, you know, of the film, we've got the two Ghostbusters dancing to the Ghostbusters theme, so we're selling that thing still. And I'm going to say this. I was a big fan of the theme. We talked about the marketing of this mm-hmm. film. By 1989, I was kind of done with that song, and I think everybody else was too. Um, <laughs> most people were, were sort of moving on from the electronic pop age and stuff. They're still hanging around in it, so you got that shoved in your face. And I, you, you feel like every film in 1988, 1989, 1990 had a kid in it, had a baby in it, crawling around doing things they weren't supposed to do. You know, this is the look yeah. talking era. I mean, we're in the middle of that. That's that's purely there because it's it's cute, and we think people will go for it. But it serves no real purpose. And I'll tell you, I, I, I you talk about unbelievable stuff. I, I could almost believe the ghost parts of this film more than I could believe Dana had a relationship with another man. Had a relationship with Peter that lasted long enough for them to live together and move out of each other's lives. She got remarried, had a kid, and has been divorced, and the kid's eight months old. Really? That was one of the yes. That's one of the problems I had with it. Is is no, I have two kids. At eight months old, you've got hormones. You're not thinking about. You you might want to kill your husband, but you're not thinking of divorcing your husband unless you're like Denise Richards and you're married to Charlie Sheen. I mean, seriously, who? Who at eight months old with a six or eight month old baby thinks, "Oh, I'm going to divorce my husband"? No, you're just trying to sleep through the night. You you don't care what your husband's doing. You just want a good night's sleep. And I find it hard to believe. So this baby's eight months old. She's obviously been divorced for a while, and I've never been divorced, but I'm from people I know. It takes like months to get the paperwork. If everything's even in order. It takes months to get the paperwork in order, and especially with a kid, that's more, that's worse than if you don't have a kid because you got to do custody and child support and stuff. So this kid was probably three or four months when she decided to get divorced, and I, it's it's just unfathomable to me. I mean, like I said, unless you're married Charlie Sheen. I, I think she says somewhere, in there, and I may be just making this up, I thought she said somewhere in there that he had cheated or something like that, and she was tired of it. I don't know. No, she said, and this is the other thing, that would have made more sense. Yeah. Um, I believe what she said in it is that he wanted to go to London, and she didn't. I, I, if okay. I remember correctly, but unlike, and this brings us to another point, unlike the first one, that kept, like you said, it kept you going. The plot moved very quickly. It kept, it moved quickly enough that it kept you interested. This movie didn't really keep you interested. I, I have another problem with Dana, though. Uh, and now I understand a lot about transferable skill sets, and people can work in a lot of fields. I get it. But I don't know many cellists who are able to, you know, a few years later decide, you know, I'm just going to go restore artwork at the New York Metropolitan, you know, at, at the museum, uh, Manhattan Museum of Art. 
I, I, you know, I, I didn't buy that one bit, much less that you could be doing that with an eight-month-old. I agree. I, I completely agree. I mean, I'm I'm an accountant. I'm not going to go, you know, I'm not going to, well, lawyers kind of, sort of. I could kind of do that, but not really. I mean, I'm not going to go do brain surgery or something. You know, I'm not going to all of a sudden be a medical assistant. Like, I have this four-year accounting degree, but, oops, I had a baby, and I need to work at night, so I'm going to go be a medical assistant. I mean, yeah. Really? I, I think that I, I'm telling you, I, I just feel like, and I don't know what Aykroyd's original thing was when the, when he started writing this again, and and what he and Ramis were going for. But I think they they wanted her in the plot, and then the producers, whomever, got involved, and that would be Reitman. I think he said, you know, let's have a baby in there, let's give Dana a baby, and let's let Dana work at this art museum where the evil Vigo is, and she is once again under attack. And that to me comes into this idea of how many times can we put the same person in peril. You know, right. because really, if you look at it, the city's always the the thing that's in peril with the Ghostbusters. But in that first film, you felt like Dana was also in peril, but the, that the city's peril was much bigger. In this one, I feel like it's the Ghostbusters are working for Dana. Yeah, I can I can see that. I I don't agree, but I don't have a good reason not to agree. So, so I don't know. I it's just different. It's the feel of the movie's different. The feel of her character's different. It's just something you can't put your finger on, but it feels different. You know, and I, I think you're right. In the first one, it was the city. You've got to save the city. And in this one, they're more focused on saving Dana. I, maybe the roles of Dana and the city are reversed, where, as in the first one, let's save the city – just so happens Dana's possessed. In this well, one, let's say Dana, Dana, it just so happens the city's in jeopardy, too. You know yeah, I mean? and, and that her son may get possessed. Now, I said that in our little plot summary. I've often argued this point. In, in in horror films, sci-fi films, fantasy action, there's always something where the bad people decide, I want to resurrect something, and I'm going to put it in the body of a child. Now, in some films, that works. Something like The Omen and Rosemary's Baby, if you've ever seen those, those are perfect films for that type of storyline. And it really, because the focus isn't on the kid, it's on what's happening to the people around them and what's going to, okay. what the, you know, the kid's the side part of all of it. Well, what this film does and what a lot of the ones that go wrong about it do is we want to make that the central focus of everything. Why would an evil dictator want to resurrect himself in in something that's eight months old and have to wait 18 years to do anything significant? Well, but maybe by the time the baby got cognizant of its surroundings, because, you know, you don't remember anything from, like, birth to, like, five years. Maybe it would forget it's some evil dictator. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just, I've always thought that's a cheap plot device. That I, I, we put the baby in peril, you know? That's what it felt like to me. I guess because babies are supposed I don't, like I said, I've got two children. I don't like babies. <laughs> I, I really don't, and I don't understand, I don't understand it. I, like I said, I, I would think they'd forget that by the time they got old enough and cognizant that they forget they're an evil dictator and be worried about their DVD player or something. Who knows? Yeah. It's you, a baby. I know. It, it seems like, like I said, the whole Dana baby subplot 
seems so just wedged into this thing, and I don't think they needed it. I think the 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 evil painting, and as awful as as uh, um, Peter McNichol is in that uh, fake Russian Janos Poha yeah. accent. I mean, and it's it's annoying from the first word to the last one he says. Uh, and I realize that's just his shtick, and that's what he was doing. But it was oh gosh, just. So ridiculous. I have to admit that there's one line in there that has stuck with me for like 20 years, and it's when Peter asks him where he's from, and he's like, I'm from the Upper West Side, just the way he says that. <laughs> I do not know why but that line has stuck with me more than I, anything else for 20 years. I'm going to tell you, it probably is the only thing that sticks with you from this one, because <laughs> this is, I can tell you, in watching this for this review, I've watched this film as many times as I'd seen it in life. I've seen this film four times. I watched it twice for this review. I'd seen it twice before. I saw it when it came out. I saw it some years later trying to give it another chance. I think I might have been in college at that point. And then I had, I had not revisited this thing until, you know, a few weeks ago when we started doing this. So I, I don't know. I like the, I like the idea though of Vigo and of the river of slime. The idea that there's, there's forces in the city and the city's built on forces that it doesn't understand. They've already set that up in the first film that, you know, Shandor had built this, that Central Park West was basically a temple to Gozer built by, you know, uh, by Shandor. So I, I can dig that. And if that had been the point of the story, it would have worked. I'll tell you another thing too is the idea that we start with the Ghostbusters and they're essentially out of business because they've been sued. They don't spend enough time on that. For me, I would have liked to have spent half the film on them trying to get their credit back together with the city and then the other half taken on you know, Vigo. I, I don't know about you. That, that makes more sense to me because that's just sort of thrown in there, then they're in the court, and then boom, everything's okay. Yeah, well, I think this is a typical of an 80s, early kind of late 80s, early 90s sequels is that everything's good, then something happens and it goes back and we're back to where the first movie started and we got to get it back and everybody saves the day. That's just kind of, to me, that's just kind of the stamp of a a sequel from the late 80s, early 90s. I want to tell you what this is borrowing from. If if I had to get, and I'm just guessing here, this is so much Rocky Three right here. You know, we Rocky's on top, and then we get to see him get his face beat in, and then Nick dies, and then he's he's you know he's broken, and he goes back to Apollo, and he goes to the streets, and he learns how to fight a different way, and he whips Mr. T, and then everything's good again. I feel like we've we've set up the Ghostbusters now as these lovable losers, and they're they're wrongfully out of business, and we all know it, and they're getting ramrodded by the court system again, and then they have to come in and save the day and knock out the Mr. T ghost. And then they're they're all back, and they've got the Statue of Liberty, and everybody's singing. And you mentioned it before. It's Christmas time. It's New Year's Eve in New York, and there's no snow on the ground. I've been to New York in December. You can't go three inches without snow on the ground. It's all over the place. So. Yeah, there's just a lot missing. It, it's just it, um, it's just a headache, I guess. And I mean, like I watched it last week, and before we started this. I was going, I was thinking, oh, I need to watch it again just to kind of refresh my memory. And I'm like, no, I cannot sit through this again. You know, I'll just play it by ear. I'll read up on it or whatever. But I was really like, I'm like, you know what? I can't sit through this movie again. Like you were saying about having it the two times, you know, I can't sit through it again. Oh, it's brutal. It it is. It's just, it is. And I have to. One, one, and I, I know this is a tangent, but 
One of my favorite shows is Friday Night Lights. It's on TV. And I think you know that. Well, and you know my husband, he worked with a football team and stuff, and he'll always tell me, well, that can't happen. That can't happen. And I'm like, just don't ruin it for me. I don't know that. Just don't ruin it. Let me watch it. Let me watch Riggins screw up, you know. Just let me watch it. This is one like that. Like, was she getting divorced with an eight-month-old baby? Why is Peter on a World of Psychic show? I cannot see a – like you said, why is a PhD doing a kid's birthday party? You know, it You know, it just ruins it for you. It's like you know it. You can't even stay in the movie believing this stuff, you know. You can't You can't enjoy the movie because this is just so out of character, so far-fetched that, you know, you can't even stay in the movie and say, you know what, I know this is wrong – but let's just leave, let's just leave it in the movie, and everything will be okay. You're just sitting through the whole movie thinking, like, why does that Russian guy have such a bad accent? Couldn't anybody do a better job? Why is Dana with an eight-month-old baby? Why is Peter doing a TV show? Why why is Ray doing birthday parties? She, you know, it's that's how um, how. Far they pushed it, I guess is what I'd say. Well, they they also, I, and I, again, I, I, I'll go with what Murray has said about it. I don't lay a lot of this on Ramus and, and Aykroyd because I think they get writing credit on this, but because they wrote the, the spec for it, I really, I'm going to lay a lot of this on Ivan Reitman. And I love Ivan, Ivan Reitman films. He's just some great stuff. The original Ghostbusters being one of those things. But I feel like so much of this is so hammy. And so yeah. cheesy, and it just it just feels so forced. And yeah. I mean, you know, from the guy that you know, and we got to look at his career. You look at Reitman; he did Meatballs and Stripes, which aren't great comedies, but they're okay. They're both with with Murray. Then he did Ghostbusters. Then he did this awful thing called Legal Eagles that has Robert Redford in it. We may get to that someday. Then he did. Oh, I think I've watched that. Deborah Winger. De- Deborah Winger's in that. Then he did Twins. Danny DeVito and Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah. And later on, he did Junior, where, you know, Schwarzenegger's having a kid. But he's also done stuff like Kindergarten Cop, you know, which was great. And he did yeah. Six Days and Seven Nights, which I thought was wonderful. You know, so he's done things that are good, but he's also missed. He's kind of like a home run hitter. You know, he, he'll get up and crank one out of the park, but then he'll strike out the rest of the game, too. I blame a lot of this on Reitman, because I think he took what they had Turn it over to the effects department. The effects department started putting all these shots together. And you can feel it, too. These guys walk on the set, they say their lines, and they walk off of it. There's there's no emotion to this at all. And it takes you out of the movie because they're not in it either. I don't believe one performance in this film was genuine. I think these guys were just getting this done and moving on. I would agree that because there's something. I don't know if they're just phoning it in. I don't know if I go that far. But something's missing. I don't know if they needed the money and they're doing it for a paycheck, but they don't have the heart that they had in the first movie. You there's, know what I mean? Yeah, there, there's also something else we got to mention. The first film was was shot for $30 million and made over $300 million ultimately. Mm-hmm. This one made $215 million ultimately, made about 110 domestically, and then the rest of it was overseas. The first one to get really overseas pushed. But it was shot for $25 million. They shot it on less budget with more effects. So you got to figure... You know, what's getting cut in this? And I think they did more effects, but they did them for less money than they would have. Because in five years, effects had come a long way. So they, they did more effects for less money. They had to pay the actors more money 
to get the right. Sigourney, yeah, I mean, there's no way you're going to get Sigourney Weaver, you know, back to do this without paying her some change, you yeah. know, and, and Murray got paid. All these guys got paid on this thing. So I, I think you get a cheaper product. And now this is not the first film franchise to do this. You know, it, just about – you go down the horror franchises that have done sequels, a lot of them will figure out, let's do less budget, we'll still make more money. And this thing made a lot of money. But I feel like what they cut on – does hamper the film because they've got all these effect shots, but they don't look. Did it? I mean, we talked the last time about the effects look very eighties, but they're not enough to take you out of the film. Some of this stuff takes you straight out of the movie. It looks so fake and so bad. Right, and the and I said last time that the that I think the effects are a little from a technical standpoint. I think they're a little bit better than in nineteen eighty four, but the technology has changed, of course, in the five years, but. Oh, I just, it doesn't work effectively with the story as the effects did in 1984. Like, we, we went on about the how effective the effects were. They might not make it in 2010, but for 1984, they were effective. They fit the story, so it works good. This, the effects don't fit. That's the problem. I don't think are the effects or the technical technical aspect of the effects. I think the effects don't fit the story, or maybe the effects overshadow the story where they didn't do that in 1984. I think you hit it right there. I think the effects are the story. That's the problem, is that they're too much of the story, is the the effect. And we don't get and, any of the, the heart that went behind it, like, like we talked about last time with the, the first film. And uh, maybe, like you said, that's Reitman's fault, where he thought the audience or the producers or whoever, somebody up there thought the audience expected to see these effects or expected to see better effects and that wasn't what drew that made the last one so successful it was the story and the heart and the characters and the plot not the effects so maybe they like you said they put too much emphasis on the effects thinking that's what the audience wanted to see when it's really not well i mean just look at the whole new year's eve sequence when the supernatural activity and the slime is rising through the ground, you get, you know, the, the, the statue that's running through Washington Square Park mm-hmm. and you get a fur coat trying to eat a lady and you oh, got. Oh, I hate that scene. I know. And that's you got. It's actually supposed to be from the first one, I believe. That oh. They put it in the first one, but they put it in the second one instead. But oh, that, that's another scene from this movie. Like I said last time, the dog, the gargoyle dog. Yeah. Oh. Oh, uh, and I have this thing about rodents and rats, so yeah, I can pet a snake. I can do snakes and spiders and lizards all day long if you put a furry rodent there, ma'am. Well, well, they get they get a former politician's ghost coming through. You get the Titanic rolling in. Now, this is before right. the Titanic had been found, so you watch this now and you go. Huh? You know, and it's kind of cheesy. At that point, that was kind of a cool thing. Cause I think that was right around the time Bob Ballard was doing those expeditions and everything. So it was in the news again. So people were, you know, that was, but it was a cheesy shot. It was, it was silly because it, they weren't going to go capture the ghosts of the people off the Titanic. They weren't going and getting Jack and Rose, you know. Yeah, and, I know. And that's what I was going to say. I'm like, yeah, we might have thought of the Titanic and the expedition back in 1989, but I'm sorry when everybody in, from, you know, everybody thinks of Jack and Rose and Leonardo DiCaprio and James Cameron when they think of the Titanic. They, I, I would be shocked if some, someone under the age of 20 even knew that was a real shift. They might have oh. thought James Cameron just made that up. Again, we have to have the montage in the 80s film, and that's okay, yes. because I like the montage. This one, though... I did miss the montage, I have to admit. As yeah, I was we- watching the first one, I missed the montage. 
montage. Yeah, I mean, they, they serve a purpose when they're done right. This one is just let's throw some cool-looking stuff on the screen and see if it gets a, a jump out of people in the theater. It seems so cheesy. Now, I want to say one thing. I'm going to defend this film on one spot. The coolest thing they did was the little subplot where slime, if it hits you in a certain way and it's got mood variables or whatever, it can affect it's the, the surroundings. And so they decide the only way they're getting in this museum is to break into it. And they go and get the Statue of Liberty and they turn it into like a big transformer. Now, that to me, it's cheesy, but it was cool. It worked. It was very New York. It was very cool to see the Statue of Liberty doing that. Now, we've seen the Statue of Liberty do all kinds of goofy things in the years since on film. It You watch it now, it seems a little eh. But I liked that part. I thought that was a cool subplot. It could have been even cooler if you'd have had to have the Statue of Liberty fight Vigo in some way. That would have, yeah. for me, I, I would have thought that was cool. It would have looked like something out of, like, some of the Clash of the Titans or the Greek gods mm-hmm. stuff at the time, but it, but it would have been cool. And I thought that effect, watching it now and looking back, I thought that effect was effective. That was more reminiscent of the 1984 movie. The other stuff, yeah, not so much. Yeah, it, I thought that effect and was effective just like the 1984 movie. And I, I kind of get the feeling that that is supposed to replace any of the goodwill you got having the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, because he was evil, but he was cute, too. So we got to have another big thing walking down the street, the Statue of Liberty. You know, it it works. You know, they break in the museum, though, but but it leads to just one of the worst endings I think they could have come up with. And I felt like they, they probably got to this and like, how are we going to end this? Well, let's, uh, you know, he, he's running off negative energy in the city. Let's have everybody sing together at New Year's Eve and love each other and the love traps him. I, I mean, did you feel like that was you know, as cheesy as I did? Yeah, that was cheesy, but the other thing that kills me, and I hate to go back to this, is why was this movie released in the summer? Yeah, it's cheesy, but kind of that goes with the 80s movies, too, and especially a New Year's Eve movie. Doesn't everybody get together and start singing, and we're all in world peace and world harmony and blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, it's the kumbaya ending is what it is, and, you know. Yeah. And and that works in some frames, like but not this one. No, no, not this one at all. Well, you know, you could. I'm trying to think of a good example where I've seen that. I've seen it on television more than I've seen it in movies where it worked. But I mean, you you can see that kind of thing working. But you know what? That ending has been used so many times. Everything in Hollywood is always recycled. It can be done well, but in this case, I just felt like it was. We need to get to an ending. We're at an hour and forty minutes. Let's end this thing. You know, and so yeah. they're like, well, we'll have Murray again. When you need something done fast, you give it to Bill Murray, throw some insults at Vigo, and then we'll throw some slime on him and we'll shoot the picture and that'll be it. And you guys will walk out the door and get the key to the city. And I, and, and that was it, you know, and I felt like that was the whole thing. And we haven't even gotten to the, the, the ridiculous way they use, uh, Rick Moranis here. Now, if they, you know, they use him as the lawyer defending them in court. He's a tax attorney, so he's trying to defend them in a criminal case or a civil case. It's funny. That's funny to me because he has no idea what he's doing and he's yeah. lost in the court. That worked. The whole idea of he's now going to be a Ghostbuster and he's trying to suit up and help them just felt so cheesy, you know. And it's like we're just we're just shoehorning people in the plot here everywhere we can. Well, what also about? The Rick Moranis character, and like I said, what happened to him after 1989, after watching this movie, I can understand why we never heard from him again, but anyway, um, what 
it was a great character in the first movie. And like you said, it worked with the tax attorney trying to be a criminal attorney. That was funny. He pulled it off. But something, and this goes to the Annie Potts character, too, is something that they kind of put on the cutting room floor of the first movie was um, Janine kind of chasing Egon, yeah. you know, making innuendos, and they'll kind of having this relationship. And when I was watching the first movie, you could see snippets of it, but I read most of it was put on the cutting room floor, and I was kind of pulling for them. Pulling for them. I so did not see her ending up with Rick Moranis, and it felt, it was more that force, like, they had to find something to do with these two, so they kind of forced them together, you know what I mean? And yeah. they could have, especially Rick Moranis' character, they could have done so much more, because he, is, he is very funny, and like you said, in the courtroom scene in this one, and in the party scene in the first one, he could improv and would be, have been hilarious, but... For some reason, they had to move him and Janine together because everybody's got to be paired off at the end of the movie, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, we talked about last time the antagonist of the film and of this franchise has always seemed to be the government. That It wasn't right. the ghost that the Ghostbusters were against. Now, there was an evil that they were ultimately getting to, and they've got that in this film, too. But the government, last time, we, we spent some time talking about the EPA, and, you know, as ridiculous as it may be, why would they care? That was effective. William Atherton was effective in that role. He should have been in this movie. Yeah, the guy they've got playing Jack Hardemeyer, the character's name's Kurt Fuller. He's been in, like, everything. He's always playing a bad guy or some smarmy guy. You, you, you see his face, you know who I'm talking about. He is so over the top and so just a jerk working for the mayor. You don't buy him at all. You don't get his plight. You don't understand. He's the mayor's campaign manager. The mayor can't take a hit right now in publicity, yada, yada. It's a cheesy thing. And he's just so he's so not as good as William Atherton was as as Peck, the, the EPA guy. No, he's not. It's. Like I said the last time, why would the EPA care? I thought of that, but this, the, he played it good. The EPA guy was good. He played it good. He was elusive, but didn't cross the line to swarmy. This guy was just swarmy. Kurt Fuller was just swarmy. And, and it just didn't, and, and how many swarmy politicians are in movies? He was just stereotyped. Well, it, again, it felt like another thing that was forced, and we right. we need to, we need to mention briefly all of the cameos in this thing. We've got Bill Murray's brothers in this thing. Ben Stein is in this. Cheech from Cheech and Chong. Yeah. We've got Bobby Brown who did this awful song. Well, it was 1989. Bobby Brown was awful. God, no, you got him in this thing. He married Whitney Houston. I, I'm about to say is that it was that in '89. You got Harris Eulin in this, who's a great actor by the way. He's been on a lot of cool stuff. He's the judge. He's so bad in this. He's so cheesy and over the top. They just felt like they. It, it felt like to me that Aykroyd and Ramis called all their friends and said, "Look, we know." this is a piece of garbage but come get paid we'll at least have fun and the catering here is good and you know whatever i i don't know i cameos to me are cool when they're effective they can also take you out of a movie and when you've got half a dozen of them sort of shoved into about 20 minutes of this thing i i just feel like it's eh, we're just sort of bouncing from snl skit to effect shot to skit to cameo and that's one of the problems with it this movie's all over the place plot holes there's character hole character development holes there's issues with the special effects. There's, it's almost like everything they could have possibly done wrong, they did. You know? Yeah. There's very little that, that you can, you can say that technically the special effects were better, 
but they overshadowed the story. And you could say at that time, Sigourney Weaver was a big star, but she really had no purpose being, she had no purpose in, from a plot standpoint, she had no purpose in the movie. Um, and I, I, I fault a lot of this with Ivan Reitman. I think that, I don't know, I mean, you don't know what he's trying to make. In the first one, you know, you can tell he's trying to make this horror comedy family slash movie. In this, you don't know if he's trying to make a horror movie or a comedy. You know, it's where the other movie, it all melded together perfectly. This one, it's like, well, what's he trying to do? Horror? Comedy? Or drama? Or gore? Kids movie? Or yeah, what? Kids movie. I, I think that's the thing, is I don't think he knew. I think he was just trying to... I think they were just trying to shove everything they could in this thing and and get as much as they could out of it. It wasn't a completed script. They'd waited on it for five years, and they just ran with it. And well, do you think this might be at the studio's urging trying? Because, oh, like I said, totally. five years between the original and the sequel, do, do you think this was at the studio's urging, like, you got to crank something out that people want it? You need to crank it out. I don't care how you do it, but you need to crank something out before. Completely. Now, you've got to remember, Columbia was owned by Coca-Cola at this point. Oh, I didn't right? know. Yeah, in the 80s, they were bought by Coca-Cola, and they had put out stuff like The Karate Kid, Tootsie, The Big Chill, Ghostbusters was a hit. They were behind film, uh, television shows like All in the Family and The Jeffersons. They owned all the syndication rights to those. They did all the Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy. All that was, was theirs, all right? And then they, they began to kind of lose some steam, and they needed a push. They put out you know, some, some pretty bad films there for a little while. They needed some help and they were sold to Sony in 89, but that was before this film came out, but it was part of the deal when Sony picked them up was that there would be a Ghostbusters film in production. They had been begging Reitman, uh, not Reitman, been begging, uh, Aykroyd and, and, Ramus to do something with this because the TV show, the cartoon, had been successful and had been wildly successful. Well, and that they, and they had very little to do with that, other than they created the characters. People that did that on the animation side really took that and ran with it. But they were pleased with that's where Ghostbusters is going. They're fine with it. They didn't feel like there was another feature film in them, so that's why this thing feels forced. It was. Well, th- that's something else that I was wanting to talk about is the cartoon. You know, the cartoon has been going on. It started in 1986. It's been going on at this point for three years. And I think, and I remember sitting down and watching it, and I love the cartoon. Yeah. And I think at this point that the cartoon was a better sequel, and it was more in line with the tone of the first movie than this thing was. And maybe the cartoon was actually this movie's downfall. I, it might have been. I think some of the storylines were better. Some of the, the right. storylines, I don't think they had a really good thing here. And it just got moved into production. I, I really, I believe, you know, and I, this is coming from Bill Murray. And, and he's really the only one that will talk about this now. Because uh, Reitman will some, but you, if, you, if you pick up a copy of the DVD of this thing, mm-hmm. there's, there's no commentary track. There's no interviews. There's nothing about this this film. No one ever talks about it. There's very little even on a wiki page about it. No one talks about this because they all say the same thing that Murray says now publicly, and he's only recently started saying it, that, look, this thing, you know, the effects people got this and the script was just gone. I think that's his quote. And it, it just go, and, it, and they just ran with it. 
And and they all kind of looked at it the same thing. It was a paycheck in the late 80s. They all moved on to something else. You know, And really, he kind of moved into a semi-retirement for a while because the fame of this thing drove him a little batty, and he just he moved to France and just said, yeah. get it. He wanted to get away from it. You know, Ackroyd kept working. Ramis kept working. They all kept working to do other things. Ernie Hudson actually went on to be in a lot of good dramas and had been on television, and he's done some really good action films. He's actually uh, – he's totally wasted in this movie. It, it, no, nothing – if there was nothing for him to do in the last one, there's even less of nothing for him to do in this one. It, most everybody except Rick Moranis <laughs> moved on to something else. Yeah, that was. It just felt like this was forced, and and I think we we have enough documentation to to say that now. I'll say this too: when the the Ghostbusters video game came out, the the latest version of it uh, last year, it was a huge success. To promote that, they put in a copy of the first film with it, and some yeah. like in like special editions, but not the second one. You know, you can uh, now you can now buy the first and the second one mashed together on on one disc, and it'll cost yeah, you. Yeah, I thought at Wal- Yeah, I thought yeah. at Walmart this weekend for nine dollars. Yeah, for you're, a regular. You're, yeah, you're paying you're paying eight fifty for Ghostbusters one and fifty cents for this thing, okay? Because that that that's about how I feel about it. Now it made a lot of money. It was successful, and people go, you know, everybody that why do you bang on a film that was successful? Well. It, it's successful because it does work on some levels. It hits all those little demographics. People like it. I remember going to see this. I was still pretty much a kid at this point. I was a teenager at this point, but I was enough to be able to, to get this. And I remember going and seeing it and going, eh, I kind of liked it. I thought it was fun. And then I saw it again years later when I was in college, like I said, and I hated it. And and I'm watching it now, and I think it's pretty clear how I feel about it. Yeah, I didn't hate it when I first saw it. And like I said, I don't – I cannot – and I remember where I saw, how I saw the first one. I do not remember how I, I saw this. I'm assuming it was on HBO or something like that, Showtime HBO or something. I don't remember how I seen it. I do remember, because I think I was about 10 years old when this came out, um, I do remember watching it over and over and over again, and HBO still does that. They overplay, they get one movie and overplay it. Yeah. And um, I remember watching it over and over and over again, you know, every time it was on for about four or five years, but I don't ever remember watching it again until like now when I watched it to talk about it. And and like I said last time, from the ten year old eyes to the thirty year old eyes, I like like you said, I liked it. I thought it was good at that point, but now that I look at it, it it's like yeah, this does not hold up to the original. This this was just phoned in or thrown together in some weird array. Plot and characters and special effects. And slime. Let's not forget the, yes. the important role that slime played in this, this series. We, we talk about, we gotta, we gotta kinda wrap up this one and we need to talk about where this is going because there are rumors now that there'll be a third Ghostbusters film. That's on IMDb. In 2011 and Reitman will direct it. Ivan, not his well, son. Well now, I, I, I saw him as a, oh his son. That's what I thought. Yeah. Never. Yeah. I, it's, um, they're going to do Ghostbusters 3 as the film. They're bringing in the guys who write the American version of The Office. I don't watch that. A lot of people do and say it's hilarious. Oh, I love The Office. Oh, so they they so. did a good cameo. Okay. The American version of The Office, they had a shot where they did a good cameo. Okay. Well, they, they are bringing those guys in to do this, and the old crew will be around in cameo form, but it'll be newer, younger actors. I, I agree with that. I think at this point, if we saw the 65-year-old Ghostbusters, it would be kind of silly and sad. It wouldn't be funny anymore. Um, well, most I, of the new people are rumored. 
they've got all the old people listed. Yeah. And the only new people that they have rumored are Anna Ferris and Eliza Dushku. See, I could buy them if they wanted to bring in, like, the female Gen X crowd, you know, like that age, because those age would... I, I could buy a lot of Dushku as a Ghostbuster. I could buy Anna Ferris, too. She's hilarious. I think she's funny. Yeah. I, I think they got to like get a... female Peter Bankman role. Yeah, I think they got to get a guy like Jason Siegel, you know, who's been in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, he's on How yeah. Your Mother, a guy like that. And I think they got to get a guy like Seth Rogen. Matter of fact, they could just get those two guys and put them with those two girls, and I think it would be great. I think it would be... Yeah, yes, I'm, getting, yeah. I'm a little over Seth Rogen. Well, he's... Uh, I, I would agree he's probably waned a bit, but I still think he's got enough chops in him that he, with a good script, and if he didn't have to carry it, he could probably yeah. get one of those guys, though. One of that, that crew of the Judd Apatow crew is yeah. what I call it. Get a couple of those guys. Get the I don't know. I like, you, you mentioned the office. I like Steve Carell. Yeah, I don't know. He may be too old to do it now, though. He might be. He's done a lot of these fish-out-of-water kind of things recently. I think people are kind of tired of seeing him do that. I, I don't know. Who knows? But there, a third film is in the works. The, the game that came out, the video game of the next generation, I hate to get into video game world here for a minute, but I will. Dan Aykroyd calls that the third movie because it takes place two years after this one. And the only real reference from the second film in that game is the, the way that slime works and the Vigo painting is in the, uh, in the, uh, the firehouse, which is kind of funny. Um, but it, it's this whole story about how the ultimate evil behind all of it was the mayor and, and that he set this whole thing up into play seven years ago and that it, he's finally taking control and he basically warps New York into hell or hell dimension or whatever you want to call it. So it's the Ghostbusters in hell basically fighting to get New York back to present day or what would have been the 1990s. It was effective as a, as a storyline for a video game. It's kind of fun. I would have loved to have that to me. I would have loved to have seen that as a film. I think that would have worked. I think they could have done it. I just think this thing, even though it made money, left such a bad taste in all of them's mouth that they didn't go back to the franchise for decades. And now they're going back to it. I'm saying now they're going back to it so far away from when it was. I wonder if it can still work, if it'll still have the same magic when they do the next one. That's what I was going to say. If, if, in fact, they are doing a they're really going to do one in 2011. It is so far. I mean, what is this, 20 years, over 20 years from the second one? Yeah. And putting, and maybe they're going to put another, like you said, nobody wants to see 65-year-old Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. Dan Aykroyd can just stay in his own Sandler movies. He's perfect. <laughs> in um, Bill Murray, you know, Bill Murray's done his own thing. He's done good. He's, I, I personally think this is not his lowest point in his career. Maybe Groundhog Day was. Oh, well, uh, I, I would argue that with you. I like that. I think he's done worse things than that, but, but at any rate. So. Nobody wants to say that. And I think that if, if this is true, if this rumor is true, that it, a kind of female, because we're all in this girl, I don't want to say girl power, but you know, we're all in this kind of female Female empowerment society all of, all of a sudden, which is good, I guess. But um, I would like to see Eliza Dushku. I mean, well, Dollhouse, couldn't you see her? I think she'd be good. Well, then they've got the wrong people writing it because they need Joss Whedon to write it, not the That's guys from I the mean. office. <laughs> so that, that, that would be the perfect get. If they got him to write it and direct it, it would work. I, like you say, Anna Ferris is hilarious. My... my um, 
um, I get laughed at because I actually like the house bunny. But, um, you know, she did that take on the screen movies with the scary, the scary movies. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 she's, she's hilarious. She's got good timing. Yeah. So I think, but if they could do something like that, or like you say, reboot it with heaven forbid, a Seth Rogen or something, you know, I think it, we are so far removed from the, I think, like you said, None of the promotional materials, nobody ever talks about the second one. There's no commentary on the DVD. We are so far removed from that. They have done a good job of just burying that in the backyard like a dog's bone that we could read. I think if they reboot it, they've got a chance of oh, grabbing the the charisma they had in the first one. See, that's my thought, too, and I'll say this. I, I like the idea that they want to have the involvement of some of the originals, but in my mind – just start over. We, we've got you got the technology now to do it perfectly and not to mess it up. All right, uh-huh. you get the right story because Aykroyd and Ramis can still write. So get them to write with some, with some of these you know more contemporary folk. If you want them to do the screenplay, get them to do the story. You turn it over to young people and you let it let it be a, a film driven like it was for these guys. These were thirty something actors who were uh-huh. known for television and for some films. This launched a lot of them into other things. I think this could be used in that same vein. Again, if they did it right, I don't know if they will. we got to make a ruling on this, though, Anna. What do you recommend about Ghostbusters 2 for our listeners? Oh, gosh. This is a hard one because I've been thinking about this, and I don't, I don't want to write it off. I think maybe if you sit I don't want to write it off, but then, like I said, I couldn't even watch it a second time. So maybe it's, I would recommend that if, if you love the first one so much, I can't even recommend that. You need to see it, but I can't figure out a good reason why. You know, you, you need to, I feel like you need to see it. Maybe if you if you've never heard of this franchise, maybe just stick with the first one. And maybe if they ever put the cartoon, which they may have, I think I saw it at Walmart, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Best Buy or something. Um, they put the cartoon series on DVD. Maybe watch the old the first movie and stick with the cartoon series and just pretend this is that bone buried in the backyard like your dog did. But you know, kind of for us. I think if you're like our age, that 30-ish age, and you remember seeing this in the theater, you remember seeing this on home video or HBO, for a bit of nostalgia, just, you know, look it up on Hulu. Have it in the background while you're at work. You know, don't, I wouldn't invest a whole lot of time in it. I can't even go that far. I, I'm going to say this now. You can buy this. I always talk about you can buy the dual disc for nine bucks now, uh, which is great. And you should really never flip it over. Um, if, if this is your first encounter with Ghostbusters, you should watch the first film. It's great. I, you don't even have to do the animated series. I think you can watch that one film and just take it for what it is. If you've seen this thing before and you just need to be reminded of how bad it is, maybe you think we're being a little harsh, I dare you to sit through it in one sitting. I don't think it can be done. Uh, it took me three or four different hits to uh, to get through it uh, the second time around, so I cannot recommend this one. I think it is it is it's one to just forget about. It was thrown on the scrap heap as a sequel, and it, it should be done the same here. I I can't recommend this one all. Is it, you know now all like Paranormal State and Ghost Hunters those show, those real life Ghost Hunters where they get EVPs and apparitions and stuff are big and parapsychology is actually you know starting to become a legitimate field 
And, you know, I look back at this, and, you know, sometimes it's not that far-fetched. Like, they have, like, I watch Ghost Hunters a lot, and they have the EVP um, things, which is just basically kind of like a recorder, but that's kind of like the thing Egon had that comes, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. So, I, I guess for the second one, maybe my recommendation is, just watch a season of Ghost Ghost Hunters, but don't watch it. So, Anna, I think we've gone uh, through the slime enough here. What's your final word on Ghostbusters 2? Uh, I'm somewhere between never play and occasionally play, because sometimes I think you kind of have to see it. You have to see it if you saw the first one. But if you like the first one a lot, yeah, I never played this one. I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't think you need it at all. I don't think there's anything in this that you need to see. If you've seen the first film, you got what they intended you to get. I'm going to give this a never play. We'd like to thank you for joining our review of the Ghostbusters franchise. Please follow us on the web at www.continuousplaypodcast.com. Ghostbusters is a copyright of Columbia Pictures, and any discussion of the event, characters, or music from the film is used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended.